Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Brothers and sisters, I greet you in the name of the Lord for a day of worship and a day in God's word together. Let's pray. Dear wonderful God, dear holy God, dear righteous God, the one who has established our identity, who has established and proclaimed your identity, you, you didn't have to establish it because your identity was already predominant throughout creation. But you are the one who gives identity because you are the God of identity. We don't have to wonder about who we are and what our place is in life. You've made it so clear through your word that our life is to be a life that glorifies you, that is made in your image and your likeness to be a representation for God on this earth. We are purposed to worship you and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. This is our mission. You have given us our mission. You have given us our identity. And there is nothing more that we need than that. Because you fulfill the need of the human heart. And that's the way that it was made to be. And that's the way that it is, and that is the best way. And we celebrate you, God. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Choosing God means choosing to be in God's presence. When you're given the choice, when you're given the choice to either choose God or choose something else, whatever that is, it means it's not just choosing God, but another way to think about this is choosing to be in God's presence. We see this over and over again in chapter 3 of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read through from verse 1 for continuity, as then we get to verse 14, which is the start of today's text. But choosing God means choosing to be abiding with God, to be close to him, to be with him. And choosing the ways of Satan means choosing to not be in God's presence. Genesis 3, chapter 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She knew death was the consequence. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, which was a lie. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she was deceived, and that it was a delight to the eyes, again deceived, and that the tree was to be desired, a lie, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. That's shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Is passing the blame. A truthful statement, but passing the blame. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, a truthful statement, but she was also passing the blame. Some things never change in the course of humanity, huh? I didn't really touch on this last week, but deflection. You can think that you can win some points for being honest or for being perhaps not honest, but logistically correct, because how I said it last week. But how does that honor God, your creator? How does that honor the person that you're speaking with? If you're a child to your mother or your father, and this is the way you respond when you've been disobedient, or when you, as a God follower, have broken God's commandment, Perhaps he comes to you in a similar way, either in prayer or through his word or in a conviction in your heart. And God says, have you broken my commandment? And you say, well, I did this and I did that, or someone did this, so that's why I did that. That's why I sinned against you. That's why I broke your commandment. That's not loving and that's not honorable to the Lord God. Let's look now at today's text. Continuing in verse 14. Three curses, folks. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God is a God of justice, folks. God is a God of law, and he is a God of order. And yes, I'm using the words law and order, because God is a God who declares and decrees his law to be followed. This is order. We talk about the order of creation in the first three chapters, predominantly in the first chapter. The order of creation, it's categorical. God has an order. God has peacemaking. He is a peacemaker. He is a peacekeeper. God abides in love and peace and justice. So God is a God of law and order. And guess what? That includes consequences. That includes discipline. And here, that includes curses. So there are repercussions for breaking God's commandment. And that is justice. Let's look first here at the curse to the serpent. And perhaps there's a double curse here in that snakes among creatures would be cursed. And also, as we talked about, this is the voice of Satan that was speaking to Eve in chapter 3. So it was also the curse to the evil one, to Satan. On your belly you shall go. Perhaps the snake was upright or moved in a different way where it was not slithering on the ground prior to this incident, prior to this curse. Because he says, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. That perhaps the snake was not uh, limited to the ground for its whole body, as we know snakes today. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This, this describes, folks, the lowest of the low for creatures. That snakes in some way would be the lowest in their culture, in their society, in their part of the world, if not the whole world, and for all time, since Genesis chapter 3. We definitely know that is the position of Satan, though he is powerful for now. But Satan has no power compared to God, folks. He has been allowed significant effect and power for now. 
but there is no match between God and Satan. God has all the power and all the sovereignty and all the justice and all the control. And Satan is utterly and completely subject to God's power and control. Verse 15 seems that this is God's foretelling of his plan to be played out far in the future. We know now with the genealogies all the way back to Genesis that this is thousands and thousands of years in the future. But the woman, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The woman here, obviously, there's only one woman created yet in chapter 3, and that's Eve, or the first woman, or as the text refers to often, the woman, the woman said. This is Eve. And Eve, in a way, is the first woman of creation. And prior to sin, she did not know sin. And then when she sinned, she is the first woman of sin. And then we project far forward to Mary, the mother of Jesus. That I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, the virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, gave birth to Jesus Christ, God the Son on earth, to come, to live, to show us the way to reconciliation with God the Father, to show us how to live as a human on earth in worship and glory to God, to die the death we could not die, and to be resurrected to the right hand of God the Father forevermore. Between your offspring and her offspring. He's talking to the serpent. He's talking to Satan. This is part of his curse. I don't specifically know what your offspring, when he's talking to the serpent, means. Perhaps it's another descriptor for Satan. That he's comparing Satan to a snake right here. Yes, he's addressing the serpent again. We talked about how Satan is using the voice of the snake. Maybe he's saying, I only see you as this. Between your offspring, or perhaps it's a descriptor for the future with regard to Satan, but her offspring. So this is mankind's lineage of faith all the way to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who gave birth to our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and has also all power and control over Satan. He shall bruise your head. Jesus, folks, if you don't know the end of the story, Jesus will absolutely, because he has all power and all control, and he is a just God, will destroy Satan in the end. And you can read about that in Revelation 20, starting at verse 7. And you shall bruise his heel. He's saying to Satan, you shall bruise Jesus' heel. I interpret this as a descriptor for Jesus' death on the cross. I know that the word bruise and heel is 
allegorical, right? So considering Jesus' resurrection as part of this, though fully human and experienced an excoriating death by crucifixion, in the light that Jesus can never die again. He died, he stayed in the tomb a very short time, but death could not hold him. It's impossible. Why? Because he's God. And God dwells eternally. God has always been, God will always be, and God is always in the present descriptor. I am. I am. I am. That's present descriptor. So in light of all that, you could say figuratively that how Satan caused Jesus' death on earth for a very brief amount of time, which was also part of God's plan, folks, that was not outside God's power and control. It was necessary to reconcile us back to God the Father that it was just a bruising of the heel. This is also, of course, a poetic description for how you would encounter a snake in the wild. He shall bruise your head or cause your death, and you shall bruise his heel. Also on bruise, let's look at Isaiah 53.5. Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus. Long before the time of Jesus, Isaiah, right in the middle of the Old Testament. And in the ESV, the translation that I use, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. But the King James, for example, says this. It starts, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And what did we just say that Jesus did for our iniquities? For our sin. What did it cost to reconcile us to God the Father? He was crucified. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins with his death on the cross. Bruise and bruise. Genesis 3, Isaiah 53. Let's look at the curse to the woman. Verse 16, to the woman, God said. Now, of course, this is to Eve. It says, the woman. Now we're opening it up, though, I believe, to all women. So to Eve, yes, and to all women. And now that we have medicine, this can be a little bit different. If you get a shot to help with the pain prior to giving birth. But point number one, that there would be great pain in childbirth. What was God's plan before this? Perhaps that childbirth would be without pain. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. So perhaps there was a little bit of pain to be, but now it's multiplied. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Point number two, your desire shall be for your husband, 
and he shall rule over you. So there will be a struggle in the marriage relationship. At the very least, a struggle from her side. Struggle for control. Struggle for authority. Hmm. Interesting. The act of their sin at the start of chapter 3, the breaking of God's commandment, the willful act of disobedience going against specifically what God said and choosing to believe a stranger, a serpent, a snake that they just met by all accord, there is a consequence. They, Satan lied to them and said, you will be like God. You can vie for God's position, perhaps, in so many words. That you can go outside the realm of God, that God did not have your best interest at heart, that God was not truthful with you. He lied to you. This is what Satan is saying. So the same struggle for control that Eve had originally. Let's go back and just read like two verses of that. Okay, here it is. So in verse 6, 3, 6, she says, so uh, scripture says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And all of that, all of her perception about it was an utter lie and rebellion against God's commandment. And that same vying for control, she wanted to have control. That's why she listened to Satan. That's why she took of the fruit, and that's why she ate of it. Now God says, you're going to struggle in your relationship with Adam. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. But despite point number two, the man is still God's appointed head of the marriage in God's created order. See, folks, if God had wanted women to be the head of marriage, he would have created the order that way. And then, present day and for all time, men would have had to submit to their wives if that was God's created order, but it wasn't. It was the opposite. It's what we know today. It's what we know in scripture. It's what we just read. That God created man. He created man first, and he created man to lead their wives in so many areas, and this primarily starts with love and respect. They need to see their wives as Christ cares for the church. What did he do for the church? He loved them because the church is made of people. He loved them. He showed them gentleness and respect and justice. And then he died for the church. This is how a man is supposed to show and exemplify leadership to his wife and also supposed to exemplify Christ-likeness in all ways, in ushering her, in encouraging her in worship of God. So the woman will be cursed in a way. 
Notice here what it does not say. It does not say that the woman is cursed in a way that destroys her identity. It does not say that she is cursed, that she is hopeless, and that, she, and that there's no recompense for her. No, it's limited. Let's look at the curse to the man. Yes, this is a curse to Adam, and I believe to all men, to varying degrees. Now, this is interesting. Because of the specifics of the curse. So let's look at this. And notice the first thing here, the first thing that caught my eye. The length of the description in the word to the serpent is of decent length. The one to the woman is relatively short. In I'm talking about the number of verses, number of words. Perhaps not greater in scope, but the curse to Adam is definitely longer in both the spoken length and in the descriptive words used. So I see the man's curse as more prominent. And that's not a good thing, but that's how I see it here. Point number one. Because Adam listened to someone other than God, he listened to his wife, he listened to Eve, and if he was right there with her this whole time during the temptation, then he listened to Satan. He listened to someone besides God. That's the point. And because she took of the fruit and ate and she gave it to her husband and he took it from her and he ate. We need to know even your spouse can be wrong at times. Misguided. Given to sin. So we need to test and approve. This is what the Bible says repeatedly throughout scripture. Test and approve the messages that you hear in your life. Measure it with the word of God for accuracy. You need to look at it alongside the scripture for accuracy. Does this match up? Adam did not do this. Well, Eve didn't do this either. Neither of them did it. Point number two, because Adam ate from the tree, which God commanded not to, he was cursed. It wasn't just a thought that he had, which can also be sin, by the way. But, and, and it wasn't just a word, but he did it by action. He committed the sin by action. Point number three, the ground is now cursed. And we don't know necessarily the Garden of Eden was cursed because they're going to be banished from the garden here shortly. But the ground is cursed. And wherever Adam will be, in the way that I understand this, the ground will be cursed on the earth. And this is because Adam sinned. The ground is cursed not because Eve sinned, but because Adam, who was head of their marriage and therefore responsible in so many ways before God, sinned. Number four, not only will the ground be hard instead of fruitful or fertile, but so much so, it says here that it will cause Adam pain. To the woman, he said in verse 16, 
in pain you shall bring forth children. And in verse 17, and to Adam he said, in pain you shall eat of the cursed ground all the days of your life. Think about an abundant provision, an abundant feast, if you will, or a rich, healthy garden, that there are fruit and there are vegetables and there's just abundant amounts of food. This is not going to be the case anymore. Plants of the field will be their food. And when he does work the ground, what do we see? Thorns and thistles, the ground shall bring forth for you. I don't know about you folks. It's very difficult to eat. And I kind of, okay, try to say this nicely. I have a dislike for blackberry vines. I have pretty much all of my life. Why? Because they're predominantly thorns, thorns everywhere. And they grow like wildfire among the places that I live. And they are a weed that just is incessantly growing. And yes, they also have fruit. So thorns and berries. But what we read here is no fruit. But it is this type of yielding. This is what he's going to yield. Before he worked in the garden, he worked and kept the garden. And he yielded an abundance. Now, thorns and thistles. And it doesn't say anything about fruit. You shall eat the plants of the field. And I don't think that they were abundant plants, like lettuce or some of the rich, nutrient-rich vegetables that we know. Work will not be pleasant, nor an abundant provision like it was in the garden. But now it's going to cause Adam much effort to bring forth any food. He's going to have to work and work and work and work now just to eat. This is what I see here when it talks about the sweat of his face. And Adam is not described with pleasant description. Rather, he's sentenced that he is, what does it say? Dust. And to dust you shall return. Perhaps the garden was also cursed in a way, I'm not sure. That point's not really clear in this passage, but what we know is this brought a very tangible, physical, mental, emotional, physiological change in how Adam and Eve would live out their days on the earth. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be stressful. There would be stress in their relationship with each other. And there was no choice but to live with the consequences of all of this. Because God has always been in charge, and he was absolutely in charge of this situation as well. See, God is still in control. God is still in power. God is still ruling and reigning in law and order and a God of justice. So there has to be consequences. And they have no choice because there is no challenge to God. That was the lie. That you could be like God. You could be as God. You could be perhaps co-equal with God. That's not it. 
That's a lie from the pit of hell, from Satan himself. And it sounds like Satan. He told them that they could be in charge of their futures apart from God. But God demonstrates in this powerful curse that he is the only one in charge of all things at all times, and there has never been and never will be someone like him. God is God alone. That defeats the Mormon theology right there. There is one God. I mentioned in verse 6 about how Eve believed the lie and that she embraced that it was, it's kind of like she took what Satan said and we have a, an account of the way that she perceived it. Okay, so it's different from what he said. And, the, and we get to hear like some of her thinking about this. Again, that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired, yet nothing could be further from the truth because the result from eating from that tree we see in Adam's curse meant essentially there would be no more good food. This can be my interpretation of this, and I understand that. But maybe that there would be no more incredible food, if you will, or food in abundance. What food Whatever food can be found out there would be eaten. It'd be consumed, whatever it was, because they just simply needed food. Verse 17, God says to Adam, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And in verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Well, that tells me it either was extremely difficult to grow and produce the wheat for bread or be able to cook the bread or that the bread was not that good to the palate. Have you ever eaten something that you find displeasing and your face reacts before you can control it at the dinner table? Sometimes with propriety, you're just supposed to like not make a grimaced face. So perhaps this by the sweat of his face was this, that it just not, it did not taste good. And this is the difference from going outside the will of God. There's always a less than. There's always something missing when we go outside the will of God. Think about Ecclesiastes, right? So you had King Solomon, who was the son of King David. He built the temple for God. He is the wisest man who ever lived. And yet, he searched worldwide for pleasure outside of God. And what did he find? And he writes in Ecclesiastes as he comes back to God and repents to God. That there is nothing else that satisfies. That there is nothing else that has close to the meaning and purpose and life that God provides by the sweat of his face adam now feels the difference this curse upon them shows them what life is like when you go outside the will of god when you oppose god when you rebel against god the world is lost in darkness folks why 
because they choose, because they pursue, because they seek life apart from God. So they're lost in darkness. Or you could say they're on their own. You're not going to be able to make a good life for yourself when you're on your own. Why? Because the creator God of the Bible created us to be in relationship with him, to find our identity in him, to find our purpose in him, to live an abundant daily personal relationship with him in conversation, in worship, in adoration, in repentance. God wants to be involved in your life. That's the point. And God wants you to be involved in what he's doing in his life. And there's so much more to God than we could ever understand or perhaps even imagine. But we get to know him in this very, very special way because of what Jesus Christ has done. And the offer to you to start that relationship, if you have not already, is right now today. Pray to God, surrender your life to Jesus Christ and say that you cannot do life anymore without him. That you can only do life with him because he is the author of life and he will give you life. But you need to surrender all of your other efforts, all of your other pursuits to God alone. And God is waiting for you. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his son. And surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus died for you, and that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And you need to surrender your whole life to him. And then you'll find a life so great you never knew and you never imagined. It's so great. Let's go back to Adam's curse here. If you felt any or all of your life that work or income finances at any level has been a struggle, despite your best efforts, now I'm not talking about laziness or those who think they don't need to work. The Bible addresses that too, by the way. But if you work hard or you strive to get results or you try to get ahead or you just try to find peace in your work, you try to get ahead of your expenses and you're always playing that, that line and trying to catch up even to zero out of debt. Or try to just scrape together enough money to pay your basic living expenses, then you know the curse of Adam. Some people would say the curse of Adam is no longer applicable to us. But as someone who has struggled for a very long time with work and income finances at a certain level myself, I believe the curse described here to Adam in verses 17 to 19 is still very much with us. For those of us who have surrendered our lives to Christ, of course, we are Christians and of the kingdom of God. And by the grace of God and by the work of Christ on our behalf, our, our joy is magnified in God because of God. We have the Holy Spirit indwelt within us because we are God's and our identity is in God, but we are still living in a fallen world and still living 
in many constraints. And I believe we're still under the weight of the curse. Now I say this, and I know many people who do not struggle with bringing in plenty of income for their household. In fact, I think about it, most of my friends make significantly more than I do and live differently because of that than I do in terms of finances and being able to move ahead financially in their lives. But I want to be honorable in paying off my debts because I do not believe God wants his children to have debt. And yes, I would like to bless others through being able to give to them financially. And I do in meager amounts and humble amounts now because I believe God wants all of his children to give regardless of how much they have. But this is part of my desire to move ahead financially. And I say all this to impart perhaps my friends don't know the struggle of Adam's curse in this way. I absolutely know it because I feel it. So maybe it is that the curse of Adam is more felt by some of us than others. But to those who do not feel the weight of it in this way, I say rejoice in the abundant provision God has given you in this. We all struggle in many ways, and each of us struggles in different ways. But getting back to the scripture, in Genesis 2, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. His abiding presence was among them. He created them. He gave them their identity. I'm quite sure he talked with them and taught them on a daily basis because they had an intimacy with God like that. This kind of close relationship with God is really unparalleled, right? In physical proximity, and in their choice to rebel against God, they kind of got kind of what they sought to be apart from God's presence, because that was the cost and the curse. And we're going to get to this in a little bit next week, but I want to connect this to sin itself. The opportunity cost of sin today is that one, we're rebelling against God when we sin. Yes. But two, that sin causes damage and distance in your relationship with God. So, in a manner of speaking, the consequence of sin today is similar to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they did it if they had trusted God, and Eve even reiterated it to Satan during the temptation. They did it knowing it would cause their death. But the real death, or the primary part of the death, though of course it was in many ways, was the broken nature it caused in their relationship with God. It tore it apart. And God cannot dwell where sin exists. So therefore, God removed his presence from Adam and Eve physically, tangibly, right? Something you can see and touch. There'd be no more hearing the sound of God walking in the garden. 
And this was a very real and a very direct and a very powerful consequence for the sin. And when we're tempted today, we must consider that at least there is consequence to sin. If I choose God at the point of temptation, look at it this way. If I choose God at the point of temptation, two things happen. One, my relationship with God continues in closeness, in close proximity, not physical, tangible proximity. I'm talking about the closeness that you have with God, the close relationship that you have with God. And two, guess what? My relationship with God becomes stronger, stronger than it was before the temptation, because now I'm a little more jealous than I was before the temptation for keeping the status of my relationship with God than I was before. Do you get that? Do you feel that? That you're affirming your relationship with God. At the point of temptation, you're choosing God. You're choosing the relationship. And the wondrous aspect of this folks, of course, is that you're not just tempted here and there or once or twice a week. You're tempted many times every single day in different ways. And for some people, it may be predominantly in one way. So the more you choose God in the moments of temptation, the stronger barriers you build around your relationship with God. What does this mean? Increased gladness, increased joy, increased closeness, increased happiness, increased focus on the eternal kingdom of heaven and not on the things of this earth. Oh, that we would understand this. Oh, that I would fully understand this. Because God cannot dwell where sin exists. And if there is not sin, God abounds all the more. Now, what I'm not saying is that God will leave you if you've sinned or if you struggle with sin. That's not it at all. That's not what I'm addressing. But I'm saying as you feed a plant and water a plant and nurture a plant, it grows. As you feed your dog or your cat and nurture them and show them love or at least show them respect, they grow. They continue to grow. They're always growing, but if they don't have food and water, they don't grow. What are the things that foster the growth of your relationship with God? What does God say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. What do we see in Genesis 3? That's not what happened. God asks, do you love me? Because this is how I feel loved, if you will. If we want to look at it that way, this is how God says, this is the authentic expression of your love to me, people of earth, if you obey my commandments. 
To Adam, God said, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The serpent, in his curse, is cursed to eat dust all the days of its life. But we see what God said to Adam. He says, Adam is dust. You could probably go many different ways here. But what I'll say is that there is a cost to rebelling against God. If you think you're going to oppose God as so to get a new title or a new status, God will be very sure to remind you of who you are, of what you're created from, and who really is in control. And he does this because he is the creator God. He is the ruling and reigning king over all creation. And because he is just. And rebellion is not tolerated. And attempts at rebellion are not tolerated. He's reminding Adam, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. I am God alone. The first commandment. I am God alone. Yes, Adam didn't have the Ten Commandments yet chronologically. But he knew God, and he knew God's commandment. And he knows, he knew that God's commandment is a reflection of who God himself is. See, this is something so beautiful that we see in the law. And I'm just finishing up reading through the first five books of the Bible in my daily scripture reading. I'm just about to close out Deuteronomy. The law testifies to who God is. These are expressions of his character, expressions of his mind, if you will, and his heart. And the law that he sets forth to man is so that we can image and be similar to God in terms of how we treat him and how we treat each other. This is why we have the law. It's to glorify God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And in so doing, we will exemplify God in the world. There are only two ways, folks. There is God's way and there is the path that leads to destruction. God never minces words. And if you're curious about that, continue reading in the Bible, but definitely read the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And you will be attentive to that truth that he does not mince words. He draws a very clean line between himself and all other ideologies, all other pursuits, all other gods, any other, any idol. And that the reward for following God is life. And the consequence for choosing any other pursuit, any false God, any false idol, any ideology that is apart from God leads specifically to death. And Adam and Eve would now also die on the earth. 
God was not kidding with his commandment. It was very true. And in a way, considering what they had done, considering this monumental shift and the way that they had grieved God, I think the fact that they would eventually die on the earth, well, one is absolutely part of the curse. But I think he only lets him live with that for so long. Somewhat in God's mercy, and there's mystery in that. Let me read something to you. In Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 11. Again, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel before they inherit the promised land, after the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Through the words of Moses, God says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us so we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us so we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. There's a lot of similar language in there as in Genesis 3, isn't there? Blessing and curse, life and death. That if you choose God, you will have life. And if you choose disobedience, there's a consequence. And eventually, it's death. So we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. There is nothing else out in the world that you need to seek for your identity, for your pleasure in life, for your fulfillment, than simply God's command and God alone. Let's pray. Dear God, 
We submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to your authority. Lord, I struggle with sin, but I don't want to. I want to live a righteous life by the grace of God, not by my own power, but by yours alone. I want to be changed by you, God. Search and examine our hearts to see the dark areas that have not submitted, that we have not submitted to you, that we might be full of light and you are light, that we might be full of life and you are life. Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world. And anyone who walks in your ways will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life and will be of the kingdom of God and of its purposes. Help us, Holy Spirit, in the power and the grace of God for us to walk in God's ways, for us to learn from Jesus' teaching, to apply it to our lives, that whatever Jesus taught, we would obey, that we would live with this teaching, that it would be on our lips, that it would be spoken of at our dinner tables, that it would be spoken of when we go out with friends, that it would be spoken of at church and outside of church, because the world needs to hear about the love and the grace and the wonderful gospel of our good God. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 3.